and just got closer, just said, injury on his back. I said, God, he just got so I rode side of him and look, just had to look at his face. And it was him. He was just there on his own, just riding up a mountain. It's like, you know, I, you expect these stars to have an entourage or a following car, but just out there for his ride. Got my phone out. I was fumbling so much to try and get it on selfie mode. He was, ended up pushing me for a bit. Well, I was, <laughs> it was just brilliant. This is big, big pushing me at one of the greatest mountains in the world. Welcome back to Top Tube, a cycling podcast that brings together the joy of amateur riding with a little pro peloton opinion along the way. Joining me this week, as ever, are the Julian Dix to my Julian Alaphilippe, David Quainton. Hello, that's exciting. It is exciting. Yes, yeah. it well. yeah, it's, it's all in there. And the Phil Mitchell to my Mitchelton Scott, <sighs> Stephen Balvig. Can I have you? Just say hello like a normal Phil Mitchell. Twit. What are you doing? Yeah. Well, I <laughs> and you ruined it. Good. Well, I'm just going to go straight back into yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. Please just say hello. <laughs> uh, and the uh, and on an East London vibe, the Phil Mitchell to my Mitchelton Scott, Stephen Balby. Hello, I hope to go to East London one of these days. Well, I've heard good things. Have you never been? No, no, it's good, lovely. Good to have it's ambition. Good. Isn't yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to remember to introduce myself this week. Oh, and who say, are you? And say that who I'm Graham Wilgos. Oh, who am I? Uh, and as I've, as I've remembered... You're the Graham that, Wilgos to your Graham Wilgos. So. Well, yeah, I, I haven't got a, a thing for a thing for me, if, if you can think of one. I've got something. It's, it's yeah. time, yeah. You're um, something to my Kisbula horn, I know that. Well, a jazz trumpet, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're the jazz trumpet to his kid's boona horn, so we see. Yeah. Most days. Yeah. Well, okay. Good. As, as we've all remembered what we've got to do, um, do, you want to, do you want to recount what you've been doing this week? Shall I go first? Straight into it? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I've mentioned to you before, I don't think I'll mention it on here, but I have a, a weird ambition uh, to build a bike out of all the abandoned bikes that I've seen left around mm. London all the time. So I've done a bit of looking into it. So you mean you've been one size, one sizing up bicycles? Size, yeah. you, do you mean to do this legally? Yes, to do it legally. No, because that's, that's the important out, bit, actually. It oh, would be very it. easy to do it illegally. because um, well, How do you plan to do it legally? Well, I went to the police station and said, are you responsible for removing bikes from the street? And they said, no. Go away, essentially. It's actually a responsibility of the local council in the UK. So um, uh, quite a few local councils have... after they filled all the potholes? And... Oh, yes. Cycling after. beef. Oh, I was simply suggesting by that uh, that's probably why there's so many abandoned bikes just left there. For I, I think people just leave old bikes behind, don't they? But I've th- there are some nice frames around, you know, some nice old rally frames and stuff like that. Anyway, I, th- I think for about six... Frame. Well, I think from about six or seven bikes you put one together. What you have to do is go to the council. The council, um, they either have a, a form online or you can go to them and get them to do it. They will put a note on the bike which will say, within the next two weeks we'll remove this bike um, if the owner sums up, and then they take it away. There is actually a process for them to do it anyway. And there are abandoned bike schemes where people put bikes back together. And I'll put a list of them online because a lot of those ones, if you do find them, the bikes are then sold and the money goes to charity. Um, but you can also build your own one. Um, so that's what I'm going to do. We all do. Should we all do it? Well, we should. I don't see why not. Fashion. Yeah. 
build a bike. Like, build a bike. And then and, and then probably race it. And then race it yeah. up, up Box Hill. Why not? Fantastic. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. Definitely do that. Yeah. I once uh, um, locked my bike up in the middle of Richmond, and I was going to France, this was all about 15 years ago. Richmond, sorry. sorry. Richmond. Most people, get on, most people get the boat from Richmond Dave, upon yeah. Thames, yes. And, or the channel. And I uh, can't remember why, but I think my lock had broke. And I thought, well, that's, that's buggered me, isn't it? Um, and I was, I was, you know, anxious to get to France and ride around, so... Um, ride around France. Yeah, broad. I have many excellent stories from France, but that's another that's another day. Um, however, I wasn't sure what to well, do. Let's get so, the bad ones out of the way first. Right. right. No, no, this is you know, this is a some good it's a belter. So yeah. absolutely. Well, you let me tell the story. All right, come on, come on, come on. Anyway, so I wasn't sure what to do, so I thought I'll go to the police station because I I asked their advice, and they were actually quite helpful because maybe it's because it's Richmond. Um, but they came and stood, they dispatched a police constable to come and stand next to me. I'd already taken the liberty to go into Robert Dias and buy a hacksaw and went with them and said, do you mind coming with me and, if I, and stand there while I saw my lock off? And they did so. And it took me about 20 minutes of sorting and the person just sat, stood there watching me the whole time um, to give it legitimacy. And then I... Uh, uh, got through it eventually and tossed it in the bin and off I went. However, it did strike me that at no point did they ask for any proof that the bike was mine. <laughs> was it in fact your bike? No, <laughs> no, really. yeah. no proof whatsoever. They didn't ask what the case for the lock was, um, any proof of ownership at all. So I could, if I'd have been quite a confident thief and was prepared to take my time about it, I could have just got a policeman to come and stand. <laughs> That's not a pro tip for any thieves out there. Um, have you ever had a bike stolen? Uh, miraculously, no. So I've had two stolen. One was from literally outside my front door, um, and the other was I lent uh, my old mountain bike to my brother who took it to uni, and it, it was stolen within an hour. Within an hour of me lending, is that a reflection on the area, or because actually uh, he we uh, yeah, it's partly a reflection. I think a bicycle wherever you leave it, particularly in or around London is going to go quite quickly, particularly if, well, I'm going to guess, he didn't lock it up. Uh, he did lock it up. Yeah. He did. No, he did yeah. lock it up. Um, but apparently they had had a spate of them recently, and it had a, a very nice white saddle on it. It was a Scott, the nice um, Scott scale yeah, Selena. bike. Selena, yeah. I call yeah. it. Yeah. Well, so I lent the same giant that you and I had to, oh, yeah. uh, to my old housemate, and that went because he'd left it locked up outside his gym and assured me when he got back that it was in a safe place. I was like, there's, there's no such thing in London. Which it, there isn't. You know, at least he offered to pay for it immediately. He did, to his credit, actually. Yeah. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Can't, can't, can't um, place the, the sentimental. Our, our friend Matt loss, uh, lost his, his. I was always jealous of Matt's pounds bike as a kid because it was was better than ours, basically. Was that the one with the square frame? Yeah. yeah. But it looked because it was different. It was an orange kind of, yeah, cuboid esque, you know, instead of round bars, kind of cube, cube, cubic bar. But, uh, and it had suspension, which is a relative rarity at the time. Uh, so he's going back a long way. And uh, he'd had it for a, a while, and he sort of sheepishly admitted to me one day uh, that it had been stolen. And there was something in the tone of his voice and just, you know, me knowing Matt quite well. I sort of looked at him and said, Matt, and I had no reason to know this. I simply said, did you lock it up with a padlock that you got out of a Christmas cracker? <laughs> and he looked at me slightly agape and said, yes. <laughs> How do you know? Just your look. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, don't don't lock your bike up. 
in Richmond because there's people out there who know how to get the police on the side and don't use <laughs> a paddock <laughs> from a Christmas. On a serious side. note, bicycles are obviously very appealing to thieves, particularly racers like, uh, well, road bikes like you and I had, David, certainly. Yeah. Um, because you can move them quickly. Yeah. You can take parts. It's so very they'll easy. be they'll be easily sold, easily moved on. Didn't they? I'm pretty sure they found a place in Morocco where they were just basically nicking bikes from, and, and they just took them out there. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so that's what we've been doing this week: messing our bicycles. Uh, should we talk about Strada Bianchi then, or have you got a? Well, just before we do, yeah, it, is, it, is, it is Italian themed. Okay, so well, that of. works. Uh, I'm going to throw a quote at you. Okay. Like you to tell me who's, who's, well, no. <laughs> is it Mario Cipollini? It is not, uh-huh. no. Is it Paolo Turchi? It is, unfortunately not. So that was, I knew that was going to be your go-to. We'll play a little Paolo Turchi, who is our favourite yeah. Italian artist. Yeah, well, she should be the soundtrack to any cycling holiday, but we'll, we'll come to that. We'll play it in. Um, so the quote is, as I'd like you to tell me, I'd like you to have a guess at who said this. He said, um, so talking about cyclists, he said, they often have to sacrifice themselves for the leader. And when a teammate experiences difficulty, it is the other teammates who show support and accompaniment. In life, too, it is necessary to cultivate a spirit of selflessness, generosity and community in order to help those who have fallen behind and need help to achieve a certain goal. Who said that? Is it Benito Mussolini? Is he, is he even still going? Benito Mussolini? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm pretty sure he's not <laughs> thankfully young boy. Yeah. Uh, is it someone is who's it still around? Yes. Uh, Claudio Ranieri. Alive and well. No, not quite. Ah. One more, Steve. One more guess. Saki. It was the Pope. Oh, the Pope. The Pope has been talking about cycling. Oh, wow. Um, chiefly because he met with um, officials from the European Cycling Union and the African Cycling Federation uh, this week. Um so he went on to say that... A big um, Richese fan, I guess. <laughs> Sorry, that silence represents that has gone over. They're both Argentinian, I think. Right, okay. Any other Argentinian cyclists you can think of? Um, no, actually. That's, you've raised an interesting point there. I can't think back, of any so Argentinian back, back to our man. The uh, Pope. Yeah, the, the big guy. Yeah. Uh, in their careers, he says talking about cyclists. They have known how to combine strength of mind and determination to achieve victory, but also solidarity and joy of living, in bearing witness to having discovered the potential of the human being created in the image and likeness of God, and the beauty of living in communion with others and with creation. So, it's about as close as you'll get to Christ on a bike. So, then the last thing he said was, I'm telling you truly, it hurts me when I see a priest or a sister with a brand new car. <laughs> Apparently you're doing all right if you're part of the church. Um, but you can't. You can't, he said. Uh, now you're thinking, but then father, must we go by bike? Uh, and he said, yes, bikes are nice. So wow. I think we can all agree. How does he feel about the hell of the north? Uh, well, Paris-Roubaix coming up. Yeah? Not, yeah, not too far away. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wasn't asked about that, or at least he was certainly wasn't quoted anyway. So Pope Francis there. Yeah. Um, so, the the first the first holy race of the season. I not think quite... that the Pope would simply compare Paris Bay not to hell but to a kind of purgatory. Well, ne- never ending. I imagine doing the I imagine doing the hour record indoors is purgatory. Yes, I can't, I, I couldn't think of a worse time that you could spend on a bike than uh, doing the hour record. Well, I mean, I never understand that. Why not just do it quicker? Well, that is usually <laughs> the aim. Yeah, very very <laughs> good. Hence yeah. the... That's the record. Um, 
So on to the Strada Bianchi as the as the first. It's uh, great, isn't it? First ex- proper exciting race of the season, one day race of the season. Um, uh, done and dusted. And, Strada Bianchi. Uh, well. One and a half of us three picked the winner as well. We did, yeah. yeah. Should we congratulate ourselves? Yeah, well done. Well done, <laughs> well done on calling yeah. Julian Alaphilippe as winner. Um, he fancied it though, didn't he? What I found really interesting about that is we talked a bit about last week. De Kernick, did I, was it a you know ex De Kernick rider or was it the team itself that wins the race? And obviously it's the individual. But this week again showed. Their t- how effective their tactics are. And you, it was an absolute textbook manoeuvre at 24 kilometres ago. It's been said um, that there's a lot of competition in the team to make the break. And then once, essentially, that's happened, the others just use spoiling tactics. And you saw that play out, where Alaphilippe latched on to Valk Van Aert and... Jack um, and And Fulsang. Um they made the attack, he sort of thought about it for a couple of seconds and zipped after them. And they got like 50 seconds within a very short space of time. And then you just saw um, Stebar sitting on uh, whoever happened to be trying to make the pace in, in the chasing group. And because he was there and he was so strong, it completely ruined, almost by that very action, any cohesion in the chase at all, such that it was virtually race over. Well, they're so point. strong, as you said. I mean, there are... Along with uh, Yves Lampere, who finished 11th. So you've got 1st, 4th and 11th, all from one team, all the two of whom can choose just to be spoilers and, and follow a wheel. And as we all know, there's nothing worse than having someone behind you following you, whether it's in race conditions or we're just commuting home. It so, somehow makes you slower. So do we, do we think uh, any other team is going to win a one-day race this season? Because <laughs> it's a really so good question. Umlupnet, uh, sorry, Het easy for you to say. It is, well, it should be. Uh, Kern versus Kern. So Stybar won, yeah. uh, won uh, Umloop. Stybar uh, won it as well. Stybar, yeah. there we are. Um, Kerner, we've got to have at least... Well, we've, yeah, got, yeah. we've got, what, 10 minutes in? That's a new record. Yeah, good. Uh, Kerner, Brussels, Kerner. Bob Jungles. Yeah. Uh, Le Samain. That was an interesting one because, um, because Tim, of how handsome the winner is. Well, I wasn't getting there. But so, 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 so come on, who won it? Well, it was... Um, Florian Samachal. Yes, Seneschal, but if he, again, showcasing De Kernick's strength in depth, in the last kilometre, it was actually Tim de Klerk who went for a fly, and it was interesting, he was pretty wiped out by this point, and where he should have just powered through to the line because no one was chasing. He actually got a gap of about 80 metres, and then just his legs seemed to go, and he was gradually overhauled, and you think that would be uh, de Koenig's attempt over and then it was Seneschal who came through and won quite easily in the end um, so clearly if it's not one of them it's another I will say though that de Koenig is still not the most successful team so far this season it's a star perhaps not the same quality of races but um... well they won they've won four on four different continents haven't they Julian Alaphilippe looking at that field is, is the class stage racer of that field if you exclude Nibali and certainly the kind of class one that's still in form I guess Thomas as well, but as we said, probably a bit fat still. Who on form could have beaten Julian Alaphilippe in that race if it was a field of what, Steve all Bar. the best? You think Steve Bar and a man on man? I think whichever Steve of Steve Bar or Alaphilippe had got away would have won. Um, Alaphilippe's jump, as you saw, I know it wasn't a fair fight in the end, but his jump was so superior. You think Steve Bar could have outclimbed Alaphilippe up that? I think Steve Bar would have had, had to have gone earlier. He would have given him a harder ride into that. Yeah. Yeah. 
into that point. Um, it's a it's an odd race actually. As much as we like it as evidenced by the build up we gave to it last week, it's one is really a race to the top of that climb because the streets after that are so narrow that whoever has the advantage. Oh, it's about three hundred meters. It's not yeah, it's just very difficult to come past. And you saw Alaphilippe do it because Phil was saying given everything. Well, there, there was there was room because. Fugel saying went early. There was no he, he went first, and then Alaphilippe got the jump on him. Yeah, and he was never going to overhaul him in that tight conference. Alaphilippe was toying with him. I mean, he could have gone at any he, point. He I knew, think. he knew he had him. Sure, in the last twenty k's, yeah. he knew he had him. Um, but Fugel saying knew he had him as well, and it was a, he lost mentally before that point. I think. I guess. Yeah. Uh, important to talk about the amateur riding side mm-hmm. at the start of the Yankee because there is one. There's their Grand Fondo, yeah. um, so you can go and ride. More or less the same course, and we're doing um, it next year, right? For, well, let's let's go and do it, yeah. right? Um, because it is. Uh, that's, we also probably should mention why we love the Strada Bianchi so much, as well. Why, why do you love the Strada Bianchi? So You've much, got right? this wonderful combination of absolutely sensational Tuscan countryside scenes, yeah. gravel roads, which uh, were uh, are an absolute killer. Mm. Um, uh, and, and plus, you've got a bit of an all-star feel as well. We turn up. It's, it's got this. It's got this real pull, and so it is genuinely for me the first one-day race of the season to get properly excited about. In the same way that, as we'll come on to shortly, Paris Nice is the first stage race of the season to get properly excited about. So, who uh, put out these these statistics in the in the Grand Fondo? Two hundred eighty watts, twenty-one miles per hour average over eighty-six miles. Who was it? How old are they? In the Grand Fondo. I don't know. In his in his fifties by now. How much does this does this person weigh? Uh, that I can't tell you. David knows this. Oh. So come on, who was? Are it? they related to cycling? Yes. Is it Dave Brown? Yes. Well, I mean, you, you knew it. It was <laughs> Sir Dave Brown. <laughs> like correct. It out. Um, so he he got to sign himself up, hasn't he? And those uh, given well, those given those numbers. To know if he weighs like ninety kilos, and that's actually a relatively modest. He's in shape. He's, he's in shape. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what he's in shape. What do you think? He, what What do we actually think he weighs? Like seventy five, eighty, eighty. I think he weighs probably slightly less than me. So how how many how long was the race? <laughs> so one hundred kilos. So what duration did he put those watts down for? Uh, eighty six miles. Pretty good going. Mm. I mean, he yeah has access to good doctors and good training facilities. So if he's committed. He's on his bike every day as well, so yeah. fair play to him. Um, mentioned Paris Nice there, who we've been watching. We're two stages in at this point, at the, uh, at the point of recording. So, two sprint stages. I'll pick you up on your uh, pronunciation. Uh, two points, actually. is actually, we've been saying pronunciation, which is itself a mispronunciation. <laughs> um, and secondly, is it Paris Nice or is it Paris Nice? <laughs> okay, it's carrying in. Carry on, carry on. We're leaving that in. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, So uh, we've had two sprint stages, both won by Dylan Grunewagen and Dylan Greenpath, or Green Roads, or if you separate them, Greenway. Greenway. Yeah, it's Green Path. Well, yeah, Green Path, Green Roads. Yeah. Um, the fastest guy out there, given some serious competition as well. We've got a, a packed field, uh, which is very exciting. It's very exciting. So you've got Sam Bennett there, uh, Caleb Ewan. Uh, I guess the one person we will briefly talk about is is Mark Cavendish, who uh, abandoned today, and it seems that he is not yet back. Fighting, fighting back to fitness, and it was the pace today was hot. The pace was hot. You had Luke Rowe gunning it on the front, and Jumbo Visma also gunning it. You've had George Bennett talk about 
after the stage today talk about just how hard he said it's the hardest days I've had on the bike. Obviously, you know. Do you want to, do you want to explain why that is? used to being looked Steve? after, but now he's doing the work for Grunewagen today. Do you want to explain why that is with the echelons today? Because the echelons have ripped the race apart. Do I want to explain what an echelon is? Well, why it's so difficult in an echelon, just briefly. Uh, well, it's only difficult in an echelon if you get caught out of the echelon. Um, the danger in an echelon, obviously, is when in a crosswind the race tends to split because everyone's trying to take shelter uh, laterally rather than um, from back to front. Uh, eventually, the, there runs out of room on the road and someone, some poor hapless bugger, has to then start another echelon behind, which leads to splits, which, as we've seen plenty of times, um, can enliven even the dullest and flattest race. Uh, we, we last saw, most notably in the 2016 World Championships, uh, lots of splits early on in, on an otherwise completely featureless. Mm. Um, it was otherwise a completely disastrous World Championships because there were no spectators and the race was incredibly boring, except for the strong winds which led to huge splits and uh, and the, the front group of 25 or so, which included both Sagan and Cavendish. Um, well, that's it as well, because Cav rides the wind really well. Usually, yes, which he doesn't always like, need teammates. Yeah, um, and, yet, and yet he buggered it up because he had Well, no, t- I mean, today, it's just... I mean, so, Bernie so Eisel left him. Left him by halfway. Anyway, we wish Cav well. Yeah, indeed. Hope you come back soon. So we made our predictions for the race on on, uh, on Twitter at TopTube Podcast. Yeah, you can also find us on Instagram at TopTube Podcast. Good to get that plug in. Always get the plug in every week. Uh, so we said um, uh, that Simon Yates would win it. He is not going to win it. He's not looked good, has he? Well, so he's far. lost. Uh, he's he lost he to... seven minutes today. But I mean, that was he was affected by the echelons. Yeah. Uh, Bob Jungle's still in with a chance. Uh, Luis Leon Sanchez. We went has been with, looking um, very impressive. John Eon Ion is a gear who lost about ten so minutes today. So um Do you he, think Yates is and not Gorka, doing very well? Gorkan it's a gear is out. Gorkan's out, yes. Well, yeah. So Gorka crashed out with uh Warren Bargill and uh Rigoberto Moreno today. Mick Jagger. Mick moves like Jagger, looks well, like Jagger. Well, actually you mentioned the Isagir brothers and the Yates brothers. Uh, we talked a bit last week. I never mentioned the Yates brothers. Well, you, just, you well, literally well, you just should. Have I should have mentioned them. And you raise a very good point, yeah. Stephen. Tell me more about them. I mean, you actually literally just mentioned them. You said Simon Yates was uh, Did I? having Did I a bad one of them. Yes, well, I've extrapolated, as oh, you do. Wow. It's quite common to talk about the Yates brothers when you talk about one of them. Well, I think you'll find most people do that. Kill them. No, I wondered because, um, as we've seen with them, that they go through periods where one of them is doing better than the other, and then the other will suddenly have a resurgence. Mm. And, so, and so it goes. I wondered whether that was the case with the Years of Gear Brothers as well, because um, there's actually a sort of fine tradition in cycling, which I suppose now I think about it, sort of begins and ends with the Schleck Brothers, which there's a couple of others. There's the Tanfields now as well. Yes, well, like I say, it's a burgeoning phenomenon, this. Mm. But is with the Schleck Brothers, it was interesting because they decided amongst themselves, especially the in Craig Andersons. Yes. Only one of them raced the weekend. The Sagans. The Sagans. The Quintanas. The Nibbles. Yeah. I've got nothing. No. Well, you've named I should, I should um, something. The Schleck Brothers would actually decide amongst themselves. They would Stan take... and Chris Boardman. Gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, could, could we? Let him could run. we focus on my interest? Press play, you've got to let him run. Anecdote here. No, they would decide amongst themselves. When it came down to a Luxembourg uh, road race or time trial championship. Terry and Grant Thomas. Just 
Fuck off, David. You're <laughs> <laughs> the one who's going to have to do the work. So I didn't Literally, I ruined one take and then you ruined me and then relentlessly ruined four takes. You do really well. Carry on from it because I'm in. The Schleck brothers, then, being from Luxembourg, mm-hmm. um, it's fair to say there wasn't a sort of massive um, strength in depth from that country. So when they were at the top of their game, um, they would actually take turns to decide when there was a national championships or road race championships or a time trial championships, they would take turns and decide, oh, you know, Frank, it's your turn to win it this year. And they would just go out and do it. Um, and they did that quite a number of times. I wondered whether there's any aspect of that with the Yates brothers, um, because we've known, we've seen that they have uh, avoided, in the earlier part of their career, riding in the same races together. I wonder whether that was because they didn't want to compete against each other, or they just portioned the season between them. I suspect it's that. I mean, for example, if, if, we, if we were professional uh, riders, I wouldn't want to ride with you guys. If we were, if we were all competitive... So if I, in in reality, Stephen would be the, the and, and we'd be we'd be domestics, yeah. and that would be is fine. That but if we were all if we were all competitive, I wouldn't want to compete against what, you guys because I wouldn't want to beat you. I wouldn't want you to beat me. I, right. I, is I it because you're sick races. of staring at our asses? I've spent, as I mentioned earlier today, um, I've spent a lot a of disproportionate my life, a disproportionate amount of life staring at your backsides. Yes. And what we realised from that is actually. Your mate's arse is probably of all the asses you get to know <laughs> yeah, in your life. If true. you're a scientist, you'll get to know your mate's arse better than any of your partners. Only padding. Wives or so I'd only recognise your backside in padding. Yes. Moving on. Yes. Should we? Yes. Okay. Immediately. Igamanau, he's impressive today. For a 60 kg man riding on the front like he did today, alongside Leek Row, uh, seriously impressive. So of the, of the seven that finished five seconds ahead of everyone else. And were in the front all day. Dylan Grunewagen, as we know, top sprinter. Um, Garcia from Bahrain Reader, Philippe Gilbert, uh, Trentin, Kwiatkowski, and Luis Leon Sanchez. And very, st- every, you know, they are very, very strong riders. You would not expect Egan Bernal, who is thought of as a, as a minuscule climber. Well, he be, is. Yeah. And to be. So, so again, his performance today was sensational. Either he was phenomenal in sheltering the wind, or he has some strength on him. That was, uh, that was quite a ride. Um, so well done him. He seems to be fulfilling all of his promise already. Right, part two. Well, before we go to part two, I want to talk to you briefly about Zwift. Do you want to explain what Zwift is quickly, Steve? What do I? Yeah. Do uh, <laughs> whatever. See if you can do it in ten seconds. Zwift, go. It's an indoor training platform. How would you Bosh. Um, however, it's different to other ones in the past because it's really good. Much like how Strava captured the market for running and cycling apps and it essentially built up a critical mass of users. Swift has done the same thing. It started off uh, whereby you could just do races and then they started doing training programs and then they've developed it to the point where in all honesty having used it a lot myself um, the racing on Swift is almost more fun than actually racing outside with less danger of crashing. So um, so essentially, uh, you hook your bike up to your turbo trainer, you input your weight. It has to be a smart trainer, which smart simulates trainer. Uh, gradients. And will also record your power output. And then you yes, put in your accurate. weight, and it will work out how quickly you should be going accordingly. It will work out your speed in what is a simulated environment, and you have an avatar on, a, on your iPhone or your iPad or your TV screen. Uh, and you cycle about in this simulated world, crucially with other people who are also on their turbo trainers at home, 
is fantastically social and fantastically competitive. And the brilliant thing about it, there's lots of Facebook groups that sprung up around it, and there's categorised races that are um, decided based on your power to weight ratio, your watts per kilogram. Ratio. And a lot of professionals use it, so people, you know, often uh, will recount, you know, riding up with Mark Cavendish or, or people like that on Swift and, yes. and enjoy it. Well, in fact, what, I have done so myself. So what I you'll like then this week is um, it was round seven of, of Zwift's Kiss Super League, yep. um, which has become, you know, the almost almost professional side of Zwifting. Um, eight riders were flown to New York to race in a venue. All riders attending the venue were weighed um, because, as we just said, uh, Zwift is heavily reliant on its watts per kilogram um, against body weight. Did you know in Zwift think? there's actually an anti-doping body called uh, Zada, Zwift anti-doping. Yeah, yeah. It's taken really seriously. Which probably yeah. is to deal with this sort of thing. So the, uh, eight riders were flown to New York. Yeah. On average, the riders at the venue weighed two kilograms more than they had set in game. Yeah. And one of them weighed eight kilograms more than he said he did in the game. So basically all the top riders on Swift, it seems, are... You could argue that a two kilogram fluctuation is uh, could happen, but if they were on average, well, I can tell you why that is actually. It's not cheating. It's essentially in when you get down to race weight, you'll set uh, your measurement at your optimum, and then you know you'll get through winter and you'll put on a few pounds. You'll hit the Rocher, um, <laughs> as 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 we learned from Graham, and you just won't change that because why would you really? But realistically, you're not. Uh, but if your, you're comp if you're head. competing on Zwift yeah, okay, and you're so really it's, it's cheating. But um, two kilograms doesn't make an enormous amount of difference. Eight but kilograms you do... make an eight kilograms is a stone. Yeah, well, actually, you know, two kilos doesn't make a tremendous amount of difference. Um, but what tends to happen is that there will be some chaps who will fly off the front during a race um, and hold twenty watts per kilo over several minutes. And what they'll have done is set their weight to say. Eight kilograms to have a preposterous power to rate ratio, but um, Swift is brilliant at this because not only is it policed by people who will scream kind of cheat cheat in in Facebook forums um, and immediately label anyone who's doing anything impressive as you know demanding um, evidence, but Swift anti-doping takes it sufficiently seriously, and they have to to keep the prestige and and quality quality of these races going. Um, that if you exceed five watts per kilo, you actually have to provide power data uh, to the race organisers. Um, that uh, proves that you can actually do those figures outside. Um, so I've actually, because I didn't own a power meter, would regularly exceed five watts per kilo and, and be, would be aware of this because there's a readout on the screen and have to actually see if I could win a race without actually exceeding five watts per kilo, which is quite hard to do. And thus, I was in the interesting position of, of telling Zwift that I was heavier than I actually was. Oh, how honest. Mm. Well, Matt Bombshell, should we go to part two? Well, I think we should. That's the end of the news. Good. Bye. <laughs>
everyone knows the rumours about what goes on in certain professional sports and um, people uh, are aware of instances of doping that they think have happened. And why is it that those stories don't get written? By people, you mean journalists? Uh, journalists and, and then general press. It travels a lot around social media. And the question that you have is why don't we hear more about that? Yes, I mean, for me, doping has always been something that has you know, bothered me from my earliest awareness of sport in the in the 90s and i don't just mean cycling and i've i've you know not 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 a good time to get into cycling <laughs> as we've learned subsequently well, no, but it's also done more than any other sport in my opinion to to rectify that it's an ongoing battle though uh we're all um as as my two colleagues being former journalists um and indeed very distinguished ones in a, in crayons in crayons case former no offense david and um <laughs> Um, as a journalist and as an mem- informed member of the public indeed you get to know certain things which you believe to be true and yet you wonder why the people the subjects of them aren't seeming to be held to account um, and from discussions with my uh, colleagues here I've learned that the laws um, surrounding libel are extremely tight in the UK especially not always as tight in other countries to the point where you really can't make any insinuation about anything. And I think that the public, if they are aware of any of these rumours, tend to become frustrated with sports journalists, as indeed they might with politicians, when they don't feel that the journalists are holding um, athletes to account, or athletes' managers, or indeed the governing bodies, to account in the way that they should be. And so we're going to have a quick discussion, because it's really interest, It's really of interest to me, as to what challenges journalists face. And we're going to try and uncover the fact that journalists, you know, it's not a lack of will, it's just they're really constrained. What what are, in fact, the constraints they face um, and the reasons that they can't always act on the knowledge they have? It's interesting that you mentioned politicians there because they are the one group who can, uh, I guess, get away with the libel. Because if, if you say something in the House of Parliament, um, then it's OK. Because, so um, parliamentary privilege parliamentary is what you're talking, talking about. So let me ask you, chaps, in going in turn. David, you first. Have you ever been in a situation in your career where you have known something and believed it to be true and have fairly strong evidence but not been able to say it? Uh, yes. So, I mean, it's a different um, industry altogether. But, yeah, I, I actually had a story about the Tamil Tigers um, and uh, hacking. But... Um, I was told on no uncertain terms I couldn't write it. I also had uh, various um, things about uh, people who'd run businesses into into the ground deliberately and and uh, done something called phoenixing or prepack administration, where it's basically you run the business into the ground and then you buy it for a pound, um, your own business back, and all the debtors are still owed money. Um, so you learn about all these things and and you think brilliant, I can write the story, but if you don't have the evidence just perfectly, then UK libel laws are, are such that you can you can be sued on on a, on a real technicality so the publishing house that you work for will you you'll speak to the lawyers and you'll sit down with them and very kind of stony face they will say oh, you know sounds like a great story i don't care you're not writing it mm-hmm. um and that's true across uh, any form of journalism especially in sport and so, especially with doping because the, the the big issue there is the very insinuation of doping is 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 disparaging someone in their workplace so their workplace is is the sporting arena and you, by saying that they are doping, are basically saying that they are not doing their job properly or fairly, and therefore they can sue you for all their earnings. Well, coming on to to you, Graham. I mean, you're 
a distinguished journalist um, in the in the field of cycling, particularly having how distinguished you wear a dis- bow tie. Distinguished, don't you? I like. Yeah. Well, having, um, I'm sure that you've heard and know of quite a few things that you could never put out in the public domain, and yet you you would sell your mother down the line because you're so sure that they're true, and yet how how come you simply can't um, put them out there, even if there's strong evidence for the case, for that case? It goes back to the Armstrong quote, doesn't it? Lance Armstrong, with extraordinary allegations must come extraordinary proof. So if you don't have that proof, if you don't have that ironclad proof, uh, then you can't write that story. So as much as you might... Uh, so I, th- I think you have to question every big performance, every every seriously big performance, as we know. That's what we've that's what we've learned from not just cycling, all sporting history. Um, but if you don't have that extraordinary proof, then you cannot write that story. And it's it's as simple as that. Actually, it's it's actually not particularly complicated. The point being that when we say you've got to have extraordinary proof, that is not just someone saying that it happened. That's not necessarily enough you're going to need medical records you're going to you're basically going to need to catch them in the act like the uh the nordic um skier well he was caught so the police walked into his hotel room to find him hooked up to a blood bag that that is it and and, and yeah and took a video that is extraordinary we're talking about the same standard of proof that would you would require to Put someone in jail for a for a manslaughter or murder. Thing. Of course, because it becomes well, sure, it's, 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 yeah. it's, it's also it's it's life changing for that person, whomever they. But why the, in the UK the the libel laws are, are uniquely strong to the extent that there is libel tourism. So if you have my next question, why are they more strict in the UK than in the US? Well, I can't I can't say why, but I can say the result of it. So, for example, if you publish a book in the US, you might have stuff allegations in there um, that are to have in the US under US libel laws. If you, one copy of that book is sold in the UK, it's published in the UK, then you will be subject to the UK libel laws and the people that would have left you alone can just sue you in the UK. And there are law firms that are set up literally to do that. Well, so pre-Armstrong confession, David Walsh publishes LA Confidential in which language? Gaelic. French. Because <laughs> he did. Because he could publish in French. Yes. So they but they could not publish in the UK. Right. So that is um, so that. The, so the, 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 I don't think there's a reason why, other than the UK has decided to have um, is, very strict libel. Is his ability to publish that in French due to the fact that the libel laws in France accommodate that as a consequence of the French government's willingness um, to... No, it's not to do with that. So actually it's to do with um, how uh, liberal... Um, laws are in general so in the u.s freedom of speech is is enshrined there is no freedom of speech in the uk there's a a negative right to freedom of speech it's a different thing um in uh, france is much more aligned to the u.s in terms of the right to freedom of speech and that allows you to say more things it's it's innocent until proven guilty is the is is still the principle in the uk so ultimately the uk libel laws are set up to protect the individual and we can all understand why that's important because in the case of a high profile sportsman even the imputation they've been cheating without any real evidence either none or or you shouldn't be allowed to make that without real you you shouldn't be allowed to make that allegation or even insinuation that's entirely fair enough so coming to the flip side of the coin though when we know and i think common sense suggests that someone is cheating i mean i think for me following armstrong throughout his career 
when he won at Sestriere so dominantly in 1999, um, there was a, a, a bunch of French journalists who were suspicious. I say suspicious, knew really immediately. They, they could look in his eyes, they said. There was a guy, um, a co-commentator on French TV, who just said, he whispered to his colleague, he didn't say it on air, he said he's, you know, he's juiced. In, in the French, but the, the context here is that so was ninety percent of the peloton. Yes, that said, just and 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 the drugs don't work unless you would put the effort in on every other front. Sure, well. but you know, ultimately, it's still. Yep. The, my point is that I knew throughout all of Lance Armstrong's talk victories that he was almost certainly cheating. I was also aware that everyone else was, so I didn't. You, you didn't know, but you were sure. I would have risked a lot Mm. um, on that Um, I had no illusions and so it wasn't particularly a surprise when obviously he admitted it I think everyone kind of knew at that point it was just a case of him you know taking the hit to the little financial hit to actually say it most journalists that I know and Graham will say the same thing are um, incredibly frustrated uh, when they have a story and they can't tell it especially a story that they are sure about Um, but they have to make the consideration that a their, the lawyers at their own publication would have told them that they can't write the story. If they went ahead and wrote it, they, would, they could be personally sued for it. Um, their publication could be sued for it. So they could, they could, they could lose um, their livelihood. They could lose their personal wealth as well. And all those things considered, most people go, well, actually, is my career um, worth and, and my family's uh, you know, health worth this financial health, worth um, this one story? And the answer is probably not. You also go around throwing mud, even for a short time, and you're going to find a lot of doors closed for you. So if your livelihood is made from access to uh, particular sports stars, cycling or any other sport, uh, and, and you're going to go around making accusations or, or writing things without being able to back them up, uh, the legal aspect to one side for one second, no one's going to want to talk to you again. Because you are the guy, you're the bull in the china shop, you're, you are Paul Kimhidge. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Paul because, yes, he made a career virtually as a journalist. Um, which, which papers were the Daily uh, Mail? So it's, it's with, the, with the Sunday Times and the Irish Independent. Right, it? okay. Um, yes, he became something of a pariah even in journalistic circles, didn't he? Because of his commitment to um, exposing Lance Armstrong. But... Unfortunately, when he turned up to Tour de France press conferences and would say quite polemical things directly to Armstrong's face and at one point accused him of being a cancer in the sport, um, at the time Armstrong was able to bat that away quite easily in the way he did. And it was actually David Walsh who was was there doing much the same thing, but in in a less um, confrontational confrontational way, who are ultimately... uh, came out of it smelling of roses, whereas Paul Kimmage's uh, career ended up in the doldrums. So I think what you're saying is you have to be pretty smart and bind your time in these sort of things. Um, well, look, this is certainly um, a subject that we could talk about for a long time, but um, I'm very interested and I think it deserves further explanation, so perhaps this is something I'm going to be doing an episode about in the future. But uh, thanks very much for that, chaps. Um, now we're going to move to part three. So we should say goodbye from part two. He's about to, and you cut me off. Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a nice way to end it. Good. <laughs>
Welcome back to part three of Top Tube. David. Graham. What have we got? Simon, have we got, a, we got our, our second guest? We have got our second guest. Um, a guy some of you may have heard of um, who has made his name um, from documenting um, some of the toughest climbs around the UK and now increasingly the world. Um, a guy called Simon Warren who created a book called 100 Climbs. Well, he actually, the hardest 100 climbs in the UK, or, or at least the ones that he found are the most uh, compelling, I would say. That's really interesting, because I'm working on a book, The hardest, the 100 Hardest Climbs in Bracknell. Um, cool. Wow. So going to be a climbs in I think the one to my old good, good luck. Good luck with that one. Um, so you tell us a little bit more about, uh, about our guest, about Simon. Uh, so um, we, Simon has got a, a new book coming out soon documenting the uh, 100 toughest climbs in Italy uh, ahead of uh, this year's Giro d'Italia. Um, he's uh, written the uh, 100 hardest climbs in France and uh, the UK, many of which um, we've written. There's I think, an app as well which you can take off the website. So it's specifically for amateur riders? Uh, specifically like for us. amateur riders. For the, gr- the, the great thing about cycling is um, it's very difficult to play at Wembley. Well, we've both done it. Um, but um, I, I have not. Oh, no, where did you play? Uh, the Emirates. The Emirates. So, so it's not, very knocked, in, knocked in five at the Emirates. I've yeah. also, in a separate game, knocked in one from the, well, not quite the halfway line, but anyway. Anyway. It's very difficult to uh, to perform in the same arenas um, as the people you watch in professional sport. However, cycling is one place where you can do that. You can, at any point, um, go and ride up out to Wes. And it's only closed when the professional cyclists are riding up it. The rest of the time you can do it. Or when the weather's particularly bad. Or when the weather's particularly yeah. bad, yeah. I mean, you can still do it then. I just don't advise yeah, it. Yeah, just so. don't advise it. Um, so, uh, in celebration of that, I guess, is uh, Simon Warren. Uh, someone's work um so we uh we reached out to him and and uh, we had this chat because yeah, he's a lovely man yeah and here he is cut a long story short i was I had a good day job but it was unfulfilling me creatively i wanted to do something more with my evenings because i was bored of watching rubbish tv um wrote down some ideas and one of them was 100 climbs because i'd raced bikes as a teenager i was still a cyclist i was working um that she wasn't working at cycling weekly at the time but i had been um, and I'd always had this little idea of a little guidebook to all, all the best hills in the country, and no one had done it, so I came up with the idea, and luckily someone decided to publish it, and it all took off from there. Um, so the first book was published summer of 2010, um, then the next one came out two years later, and then I did Belgium, then I did Tour de France, and then I did all my regional guides, and the last years being Italy. Um, I always say my favourite UK climb is probably uh, Newlands Pass up in the Lake District. So it's from Buttermere and it's just, I don't know if it was because I've lived in a city for so long. It's just the, it's just a tiny little road and there's green either side of you and it's just you and it's it's a hard climb and it's just pure nature. I've always loved Italy. And I'd drive the family south, probably stop in the Alps, ride a couple of mountains and then get over into Tuscany and, and stay there a week and then just go and ride a few. And I'd started building it up and there was no real assurance it was going to get published because publishing is all a money game. You know, there's no there's charity. It's got to make money for anyone to, to do it. So last year, went out and did four trips. Uh, went down south at Easter. Um, and then I went to the Dolomites. So I rode the Maratona and then did 19 mountains while I was out there as well. Um, and then in the summer, round the middle, and then at the end of the year, Lombardy, and f- finished off the Alps. 
I often record, I used to carry a little dictaphone around, now I just use my phone or, or the camera and make a little video at the top. So you splurge out your sort of general feeling of what the climb felt to you at the top. I mean, some of them, yeah. you know, the images are so vivid, like, you know, the Zonkalon, you know, I'm never ever going to forget what it was like to ride up there. I mean, it's just living hell. You know, they, they do imprint vivid images on your, your brains and, it, and also the people you're with and, you know, the situations you climb them in, each one's different. Like I said, you yes. know, I've documented, I don't know, 750 climbs out. Each one has to have a USP. It has to be different to the one before, mm. which when it's a 20K mountain, it's not so bad. When you're talking about a 500-meter piece of tarmac in Surrey, and I have to sell that differently to the next-door neighbor 500-meter 500 500 <laughs> tarmac in Surrey. That's when it tested my, um, my writing ability. I think in this, each one has its own character. There's always something, you know, whether it's the, the snow or whatever you find at the top, that makes it a bit different. And if you had to pick one then from, from Italy, from the new book, oh, which, would you, which would you yeah, choose? I mean, e easily, um, the Col de Nivelle. I mean, my favourite climb had always been the Col de Bonnet in the Southern Alps. But yeah. once we got to the top of the Nivelle, it's just mind-blowing. Just absolutely outrageous. Uh, now it's now my new favourite climb in the whole world that I've been to. Uh, so give us the give us the vital statistics for the Nivelle. Well, it's is about forty five k long from the base, but we didn't start at the base. And that day we drove all the way up the really shallow bit, which is only like one and two percent. So we got rid of all that, parked the car, straight out. Then up this twenty five percent set of switchbacks. Then you go into a tunnel. Now this year, because the gyro is going up, it they've built a they've paved the road that runs outside the tunnel. But we rode into the tunnel thinking, oh, we'll get through this. It was three and a half kilometers long on a ten percent gradient. And it was just, is this ever going to end? And you could hear things coming behind. And what sounds like a 747 about to overtake you is actually a scooter because of the way it <laughs> We're like, it was really squeaky bum time. Um, it was amazing coming back down the other way. But anyway, so we get out of that and then it just grinds on at about 10% for about 15 kilometers. It almost broke us. Thankfully, my chain broke and ripped my rear me front mech a bit. That gave us you know, 20 minutes to relax. And then we got to the dam, which is where the gyro is going to finish this year. And then you turn right from the dam and then you get the really beautiful bits. It's a shame the gyro aren't going to go up to the, the really stunning bit. But I just don't think there's infrastructure, room for infrastructure right at the top. Um, but it just goes on and on and on. And it is, I think it goes to something called the Park to Paradise or whatever it is. It is paradise. I think one of my worst experiences was like, well, it's not real trouble. I've never been rescued by the helicopters. But uh, when I rode the Col de Glandon, uh, researched that, I... It was a bit wet, and I, I dumped the family at the hotel. Because um, in the early days, they were just traveling around with me all the time. Um, and then so I've just got one more mountain to do. So we went off, parked the car. But there's some breaks in the sky. But as, the, as I climbed, the rain just got harder and harder, and the, the visibility lessened. And then there's lightning coming. And I, I sort of worked out, or I assumed I was in the cloud that was actually creating the lightning. Because uh, the entire. You know, Such was your power. Well, even that, I wasn't creative, but the, the, the entire sky just went white. It's like I'm in the middle of it, and it's this crack of thunder. So well, I've got to get to the top. I knew the best hairpins are at the top to take the picture. You go over an exposed bit, you say, I'm the only thing here. What's the lightning going to hit? Me. You know, I've got someone saying in my ear that, well, the rubble should protect you. I don't care. You know, I just need to get up and get down. And I was terrified that day. I've been stuck on a few mountains in thunderstorms, and it's not a nice place to be. It's quite yeah. a hairy descent as well off the Glandon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what the Mar the, Mar the, the Marmot uses, um, and they 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 they, they neutralise it now, don't they? Because people are killing yeah. themselves. Off yeah. it. So I had to do that basically a river of water on the road as fast as I could because I was so frightened about being the, the, the lightning. It's only the last 
three or four K at the bottom, we're in the trees where you can just start to mentally relax a bit. That brings us on to the Marmot rather nicely. Yes. Um, can you give us, uh, first of all, for, for anyone who's looking at taking it on this year, um, we rode it last year. David yeah. trained for it. I did not. Um, and I, I found that's possibly the most painful experience of my life. Um, and I did not finish it. I got to the bottom of Alpe d'Huez. Oh. Um, so I missed the time cut by that point. Yeah, so I've got some unfinished business to go back for. Um, but as as uh, as the authority on, on climbs UK, European, um, and having ridden the Marmot yourself uh, yes. a number of times, I understand. Uh, five, I think now, yes. Yeah. Yeah, good little story. Again, someone who had not trained. We were, well, the second or third time we rode, we're driving down the car, and a lad in the back says, tell us about the climb. And we said, we're in the climb. He says, out He says, well, you know there's more climbs on it, don't you? And he says, No. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> was it me? Was I with you? <laughs> it was just the finale. Um, but yeah, he had a really bad day. Yeah, it, it is the sportive first ever sportive I rode. I mean, we were all bike races, and it seemed like you, you'd heard of the cycle sportive fun ride from what we do that. But the Marmot looked like this is a proper bike ride. You know, we're going to go out and we're going to pretend to be pro cyclists for the day, riding in the mountains, doing what we've always dreamed we would want to do. Is, as kids, but the euphoria that fills outdoors at the top at the, at the end of the day. Uh, you know, people say, you know, go and, well, oh, I can just go and ride the mountains anyway. I don't need to pay to be involved in this event. It's, it's being there with all the people who shared that same experience as you, like you would do at a festival that makes the event so special. Um, and the same with the Maratona in, in the Dolomites. How was it riding with Big Mick? Oh, that was just, well, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, that day was awesome. I mean, I was knackered that day because we'd ridden all these mountains the previous seven days of just bashing out research, uh, which is why I'm going back this year because I want to go back with fresh legs. Um, but yeah, just right up. And I saw this guy in front of me earlier in the ride, uh, quick step kit, quick step bike. Thinking, this guy's trying a bit hard, but he pulled it, <laughs> etc. Et and his name says Viviani. Right, it must be Ella Viviani then. <laughs> and he was. And then I bumped into Paolo Bettini a bit later on, and it's like just riding around. Yeah. Um, and then when I got to, I wish you read my blog or whatever, and I got to the bottom of the gel just after my swallowing the tip, top of my gel wrapper incident, which I thought was going to kill me. <laughs> I didn't like that at all. So I could feel it going down my throat, and I was like, oh, am I still breathing? Am I still breathing? And I'm just gulping down everything I had with me to try and move it down. But yeah, got to the bottom of the jail, so still alive, and then riding up with this big red figure in front of me, and I just got closer. Just said, "Indra on his back." I said, "Can't be." He just got, so I rode side of him and looked. Just had to look at his face, and it was him. He was just there on his own, just riding up a mountain. It's like you know, I, you expect these stars to have an entourage or a following car, but just out there for his ride. And got my phone out. I was fumbling so much to try and get it on selfie mode. He was, ended up pushing me for a bit. Well, I'm, uh, it's just brilliant. This is big, big pushing me at one of the greatest mountains in the world. Um, so then we then I rode off and dropped him because he wasn't going fast enough. Got hooked up with another guy, and we were sharing the pace a bit. And then we both looked down, you could see him coming. I said, That's injury, really. And he started coming back at us. Um, and that 4k to go, he caught us, rode with us a bit, and then the other guy started to suffer. But there's no way I was going to lose his wheel. Um, and that was just great. Three kilometers had a stack there glued to his wheel. And he pointed out every little blemish in the road, uh, you know, just like any normal club man would do. And it was just brilliant. And then we had a little little tussle for the finish line at the top. Books out 18th of April in all good book sites and online retailers, or bookshops and online retailers. 
and then yeah start work on the next one I'm flying out to tenerife tomorrow um yeah tenerife and then two other islands la gomera and la palma so it's a trip around three islands and, and then get the white legs out get a bit of color in them so that was simon thank you to him um as i said a a, nice a, guy. A, yeah just a lovely man um well, steve, actually, steve anything else from you well actually i mean talking of david you mentioned outdoors before simon's segment um, I remember we were airbnb at the foot of Altuiz a couple of years ago, and as we were turning into the driveway, it was about midnight, we'd been to a restaurant, and someone in the car suggested, or actually posed the challenge, it was a question, I think, how much money <laughs> would you have to be paid to cycle up Altuiz right then in the dark? With no lights. With no lights, <laughs> um, on your own. And Which we do not advise. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think no one was prepared. I think we all agreed it would be a lot. Um, but, but then we agreed... <laughs> I think David said he'd do it for 200 quid, actually. Did he? Yeah, but I mean the mental demons that I'd encounter riding up out to <laughs> well, Then we agreed as part of a possible... <laughs> so if anyone would like to donate £200 <laughs> yeah. on oh, yeah. David's flight out to... I think we all agreed that Leon. we were going to do that later this year, actually. We'll do it and have a staggered start. And um, we could mess with each other by uh, sort of making ghostly noises on the web and we were going to have a competition to see who would get the furthest no, I, way I, I, I think if you do it, it has to, there can't be two other people on the mountain you have you to do it on your own so you're ten minutes apart so you're running it's a daft idea well, I'm going to cut this now it's time to say goodbye thankfully <laughs> um, so thank you again to Simon Warren um, Stephen it's goodbye from you salut from me David and it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me Graham Walgoss see you next time <laughs>